Oh, good morning. Glad to see you all. I'm Josh. Um, here's what's been going on here. If you're, you're new or haven't been for a couple weeks or just a reminder. Um, we've been walking through the Bible starting in the book of Genesis. So if you're not familiar with the Bible, two different kind of uh, sections. One we call the Old Testament that begins in Genesis. And then the New Testament that begins with uh, the, the biographies of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so kind of explain both sides pretty uh, quickly and succinctly. The Old Testament basically is a treatise on how broken human beings are and how um, incapable we are of fixing ourselves. So 39 books, uh, all writing about how broken uh, the human race is, how we try to fix ourselves, how we try to perform well. And at the end of the day, at the end of every single day, uh, discover that we're not very good at it. In fact, even in Lamentations, God tells us that his mercies are new every single morning. And just indicative of a bunch of people who don't need them once a year, once a month, but every day as a result of our brokenness. So the Old Testament's just really this really great story of God's love for really broken people. And so the whole kind of big picture of it is we can't fix ourselves and either we are unfixable, our world is hopeless, or someone else or something else must fix us. And so when you read through the Old Testament, what you read about over and over again of God making this promise that one day he will make all things right. One day he will, uh, in fact it says this in Revelation, that there will be a day where there will be no more tears and no more pain and no more sorrow. And so there's this picture in the Old Testament going, there is going to be a hero. And he's going to be my son, your savior. And so the whole Old Testament talks about this Christ, this Messiah who's going to come. And the New Testament uh, is the discussion of Jesus' arrival. So Old Testament is going, there will be a hero, there will be a savior. And the New Testament declares who that savior is in Jesus. And so each week we're just trying to figure that out. And so we just decided three, four months ago, that we would start back at the beginning, the book of Genesis, same word that we use for in the beginning, or the word that we use for the genetics or genes. So we'd start back at the beginning, figure out how this world got here, and then figure out what went wrong, and then discover what we can learn from it. So just slowly been working through that. Now, Genesis itself will be in uh, chapter uh, 31 today, I'm, I believe, let me see, somewhere around there, 32, we'll be in chapter 32 today, but even Genesis is split up in kind of this unique deal. So Genesis chapters 1 through 11 are all about how creation happened, God spoke into existence, and how quickly the human race just spiraled down, right? So um, you see Adam and Eve, they have children, Cain and Abel, one murders the other, doesn't get better from there to the point where God hits the reset button on the entire human race and the entire world with Noah. And then you see through Noah's lineage, this group of people who become so arrogant and so capable, they think they can earn their own way back to God or become their own God. And so God splits them all up. So Genesis 1 through 11 are all the story of just how broken we are and that there's nothing we can do to fix it. Now, in Genesis chapter 12, everything changes in the Bible and everything changes for us. And that's where we see this picture of uh, this term that we've been using over and over again called covenant. And covenant's different than promise. Promise literally means if you perform well, I'll perform well, right? You pay your lease, and you'll get to live there as long as you pay it. The minute you stop paying it, the minute you get evicted from your place, right? That's a, those are with stipulations. Covenant, God does something crazy starting in Genesis chapter 12. He points to a man named Abram, Abram who was a pagan, and say, hey, even though you're a pagan, even though you're going to make lots of mistakes— you're going to do all sorts of crazy stuff. I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless your family, and you are going to be the father of many nations, and the whole world, for every generation to come, will be blessed through you. And no, Abram, we're not going to do that because you're good or perfect or you're righteous or you never sin or you have all the right answers or you know the books of the Bible in order. None of those things, right? That's not why I'm going to do that. The reason I'm going to do it is because my word never fails. And when I make a promise, you can count on it. 
And so what we see in the beginning of Genesis chapter 12 is this idea of covenant, which, by the way, is why I love this church. And, uh, you know, when we were trying to figure out uh, a couple, two, two and a half years ago, what God had next for us, we were out in Montana, really beautiful countryside, enjoyed everything out there, but knew we wanted to be closer to family, East Coast. And there are a couple things that are really important to us in terms of searching for a church to get to participate in. One, we want to be multi-generational. We wanted there to be um, people who drove Buicks, yeah, and uh, p- even people who drove those little Mini Coopers. You know, we wanted some of you guys in this church as well, right? And so I wanted to be a part of a church that was multi-generational. Wanted it to be a church that um, had a group of people who felt the burden and responsibility for making sure this thing kept going. So one of the great ways to figure that out was to find a church that had a lot of history and go, wow, that church existed long before you were alive, Josh, and will exist long after you go. And so there was this kind of uh, theology and even... um, you know, practicality or methodology that was important to us. And so that's why I love, frankly, uh, the Presbyterian model. If you're not familiar, we are a Presbyterian church. And that word Presbyterian literally is the word elder, meaning that it's led by a group of elders, both men and women, who feel the burden and responsibility for guarding our church. You should find great comfort in that because I am a ready, shoot, aim, and I'm one bad decision away from wrecking everything, right? But we got a group of people who kind of keep us aligned and all those things. And so we knew a couple things. We knew that we wanted to be multi-generational. We knew that it want, we wanted it to be, you know, uh, led by a, a group of elders. And the third one is, is that we wanted, I wanted it to be a church that I took deeply the, the idea and belief in covenant theology. This idea that it's not based on our performance. It's not based on how we do things. You hear me say it over and over again. There is nothing you can do to make God love you any more or any less. It's all about God. It's all about God's work. It's just our witness. And so the Presbyterian model has elders and really takes the, the belief in covenant theology to a, um, a very high level, which is why we baptize babies, right? It's not that that baby can repent of their sin or acknowledge that they're a sinner. What we're saying in that moment is going, God, you promised to save families, And we're going to make that claim today in terms of your promises that there will be a day in the future where that child will know that you're good and you're loving because you say you will make yourself known. So we have this belief in that moment of going, there will be a day as a result of us trusting this and claiming it and who God says he is and the covenants that he does, that something will happen there. So that's kind of how we work as um, a church in a um, our theology. And so I just want to point out two important things there before we jump in the sermon as a result. One, um, as a Presbyterian church, we get the great pleasure of uh, getting to work along to other churches that have the same belief system, the same kind of uh, practical theology. By the way, if you're curious to where Presbyterian comes from, you can trace it back to um, Ireland, Scotland, a guy named John Knox. John Knox uh, spent some time with John Calvin uh, not too long after the Reformation. And if you're familiar with anything in church history, for a great deal of time, People who had held the keys to the basilica or the church ran everything. So the Catholic church had access only to the Bible because it was written in Latin, only to the church. And there were literally places where the Bible was chained to the pulpit. So the only way you could hear from God was through another person. And John Knox was very concerned about that and thought, we have to make sure this doesn't happen again. We have to make sure some charismatic leader doesn't take over everything. We have to make sure that it never again is one person who is in charge with the keys. And so started studying the scriptures and identified that the healthy way in the Bible that churches were led was through a, a, a group of elders. And so all the way back in the 
late 1600s to or middle 1600s to right now, we can trace our church back to John Knox over in uh, Ireland with some Scottish uh, priests or Scottish ministers. And so from there, here we are. It started in Pres- uh, Philadelphia and then kind of evolved out here. Our church started in 1726 and has been a part of what we call a presbytery, a group of churches ever since. And one of the great privileges we get so often is that to have leadership from that presbytery show up. And so Donna, Ryan, you're in here somewhere, right? Let's see where you are. Donna, would you stand up? I don't mean to point you out. Donna Ryan is actually the moderator for our presbytery, and she gets to join us today. So would you just, she does it for free, all volunteers. So just greet her. Thank her for that. Thank you, Donna, for your leadership. Really, really appreciate it. Now, the other piece of that is um, every year uh, we have a few elders rotate off and a few new ones come on board. And one of the things that our church is responsible for as a congregation is to identify, it's in our bylaws, to identify a, a nominating committee, not elders, but a group of a nominating committee who can get together, pray and fast, and help us identify who the next elders are. So we'll have three new elders come on board in the next month or two. And what we need right now is actually to identify three, two, three, four people to sit on that nominating committee. So if you know people around you in this church who are full of the Holy Spirit and love this church and love Jesus, um, on the back of that bulletin that you have, there's a little place for prayer requests. In that area, would you just jot some names that you think would uh, be good, not to become elders, but to serve on a committee to help us identify elders, okay? So if you do that sometime today, drop it in the offering baskets on the way out, that would be very helpful. So long intro about covenant theology, but it brings us to where we are today, which is back to this guy named Jacob. Okay, so Abram had a son named Isaac. Isaac had twins, Jacob and Esau, and through all sorts of manipulation, all sorts of coercion, we now find ourselves with this dude named Jacob who now has the blessing from God. You can go back and listen to the sermon to figure out what that's all about from last week. And he's kind of now in charge. So the neat thing about covenant theology is in every category, starting with Abraham all the way through to Jesus, so you get all the way to David, you go all the way, keep going, till you end up with Jesus. In every generation, there's this this person who is carrying the DNA, the offspring of which eventually Jesus will be born, that gives us a picture of this promise that God always made. And so it starts with Abraham, then it goes through Isaac. They both mess it up, and now it's going through Jacob. And again, it has nothing to do with Jacob's performance. In fact, if you read about anybody in the scriptures, this is probably one of the worst human beings in the world. Worst human, like not a good dude, he's manipulative, he drives a Mini Cooper, all those kind of things, right? Like, just doesn't make sense to me. I'm just joking, I don't know if he does or not. If you drive one, that's great, really like him. I like him almost as much as like those smart cars you get to wind up. But, um, so, Jacob's not really a great dude, and yet we see God continuing to bless him and do some pretty neat things in his life. So, where we left off last week is um, Isaac speaks this promise over Jacob, and the way by which Jacob gets it is through manipulation, coercion. He actually steals his brother's identity, puts some goat skin on, just a messy, messy deal, and tricks his dad into believing he deserves the blessing. So Isaac speaks it over him, and all of a sudden we're now set up where Esau is under Jacob. Jacob is now the one that's going to be in control of the household. And so you'd think this would be a really exciting moment for Jacob, but the opposite actually happens. Because he goes, I am... I am uh, not as strong, not as capable, not a good hunter. My brother can use a bow and arrow and, and stick someone in their, you know, their carotid, their artery in their neck and, you know, from 400 yards, whatever it is. And so all of a sudden this moment, Jacob actually freaks out and he goes, oh shucks, this isn't going to be good for me. And he takes off and leaves and flees his country, right? So he goes away and um, we find Jacob 
eventually arriving at his uncle's house named Laban. And finally, in this weird sense, Jacob's going to get some weird payback in the weirdest sense. This is why I think you should read your Bibles, because one of the big ideas we have is that we're not very good, we're not very smart, God couldn't love us because we don't do things as well as maybe people did in the Bible. The opposite, I mean, it could not be more untrue because you're about to see some really messed up stuff that happens throughout the Bible. But what happens is Jacob becomes smitten with his cousin. All sorts of confusion all there. Don't have time to talk about that. And he sees this girl named Rachel, and he falls in love with her, and he wants nothing more than the mirror. Finally, life makes sense. You know, he knows why birds suddenly appear every time she's near, right? He, he understands all that, and he, you know, so, so excited. And so he decides, because this is what Jacob does, he manipulates and negotiates, right, to go to his uncle and go, what is it? What do you need for me to marry your daughter, Right? What we find out is Jacob should have been more specific when he asked that question. And so Laban goes, hey, you got to work for me as an indentured servant for the next seven years. And Jacob goes, done, I'll do it. And we're not exactly sure how much time transpires, but we know that eventually Laban makes this agreement and there's a wedding night, okay? So, you know, they, they had the, you know, the festivities and it's dark and everybody smells the same then and there's a little bit of wine. And um, so Jacob uh, does the whole um, covenant thing with his wife and uh the two become one flesh in the night and then they go to bed things are great and jacob wakes up the next morning and goes oh shucks that's not who i thought it was going to be and finds out laban actually gave him the wrong daughter her name is leah and it says she has slow eyes which is a euphemism for being ugly or weak eyes a euphemism for being ugly and so jacob's like i married the wrong girl then eventually, through some more negotiations, he gets the right daughter. So now he has two sisters that he's married to. So he's got, the, you know, R- Leah and Rachel. And there's all sorts of complications because he loves one, doesn't like the other. So you can just imagine the pain that one of them feels, Leah. And she keeps believing if she can perform better, do better, then finally Jacob will love her. And you see the story where she has a child and she goes, maybe now Jacob will see that I'm valuable. Jacob doesn't care, smitten with Rachel. Then she has another kid and she goes, maybe now. He'll, he'll love me. Jacob doesn't care. He's smitten with uh, Rachel. And then he, uh, they have a third kid. His name is Judah. And at this point, she finally just goes, okay, he's probably not going to love me. But God is still good. And God is still God. And she rejoices in that. And what you see is Judah actually becomes the one that's the carrier of this messianic seed. So he's the next one in line from Jacob down now to Judah. Not for today, but just so you understand that story because it's some passages that we're going to skim over. I wanted to give you a quick highlight of what we can discover about Jesus in that. So this is kind of a quick mini sermon for three minutes, and then we're going to jump into the stuff we're covering in Genesis chapter 32 today. So here goes. This is a story of Rachel and Leah as told by the Jesus Storybook Bible.
Okay, so that's the story of Rachel and Leah out of the Jesus Storybook Bible. Wanted you to get that, wanted you to be aware. Not really the sermon for today, so if you like, wow, that was a really fast intro. Covered a lot of material. Yep, we did, because this is where we need to get with the time that we have. And so here goes, we'll slow down just a little bit. Now we find ourselves, Jacob now has Rachel and Leah and a few kids, and he's about to have this moment where he hears from God, and God says, hey, you got to leave Laban's household, and you need to go back. You need to go back to your brother Esau. There's got to be some reconciliation. You are actually called to lead Isaac's place, and so now you're responsible for that. Hey, Jacob, it's time to go. As you can imagine, it's interesting what happens when you're young and foolish and you feel some anxiety about your own life, but then all of a sudden you have kiddos, and now you're responsible for them. Now you've got to keep that job you don't like, right? You've got to pay that bill that you don't want to pay because now you have kids that you're responsible for. So we find Jacob now responsible for a couple households, and so he's going to prepare himself to go back, and he's thinking Esau's going to murder me. He's going to ravage my family. He's going to take that birthright back over. So we find Jacob in a, in a pretty anxious spot about 30 years later in his life. And so here goes. We're just going to read that, and we're going to see where God tells Jacob to go back. And so then he goes back, and he's heading back, and as he gets close to his brother, he basically sends his whole family away, and he sends some servants out to tell Esau he's coming, and the servant comes back and says, hey, Esau's waiting on you for, with about 400 people in his posse, right? So lots of folks, and so we're going to find uh, Jacob pretty anxious. I want to read his words uh, so that I don't mess these up. Here's what happens. Uh, Genesis 32, verse 9. Then Jacob prayed. So he's nervous, so he decides to pray. I'd say that's smart. We'll talk about that more in a little while. Oh, God my, of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me. So he's reminding God of what he said to him. Go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. Hey, God, you have a promise here. I'd like to see that happen. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. He is correct there. I had only my staff when I crossed the Jordan, but now I have become two camps. So he's finally getting some self-awareness. He now understands that this is not because he manipulated and coerced. This is not because he's smart or clever. He's going, I am unworthy of all this, and yet I have this big responsibility and blessing that i got to take care of now. Um, verse 11, so he asked God very clearly, save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me. Makes sense? And also the mothers with their children. So I'm afraid he's going to attack me, my wives, and our kids. But you have said, again, he's reminding God, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sands of the sea, which cannot be counted. Okay, God, I'm going back. I'm really nervous, but I'm going to keep reminding myself and reminding you of the promises that you made. So watch what happens next. Verse 13, he spent the night there. And from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau. So he's going, okay, I'm about to see Esau. I need to butter him up. Maybe if I give him lots of prizes, maybe if I don't see my kids for months at a time, but I bring him a really cool, you know, figurine for my latest travel, then maybe they'll still like me, right? Whatever that is. 200 female goats, that's a lot, that's 200. And 20 male goats, 200 ewes, <laughs> such a funny word, uh, and 20 rams, 30 female ca- camels with their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls, and 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. I didn't get a chance to add it all up, but that's like a million livestock, I think is what it totals up to. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself, and he said to the servants, go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. So listen, keep some space, send one at a time, start with the, you know, start with the donkeys, or start with the sheep, then take the goats, then take the rams, and then, then the camels, then the bulls, like he's doing. Look, every time, drop off one more thing. 
so that every single time, maybe he'll just open his heart just a little bit more. This is still manipulation. This is still Jacob trying to be in charge. Remember, he just said, hey, God, you take care of me, but let me see if I can take care of myself first, right? And we'll talk more about that. That's all of our, our worlds. He instructed the one in the lead, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, who do you belong to and where are you going and who owns all these animals in front of you? Watch, he says, so, hey, you in the lead. When Esau comes, he's going to be really angry and he's going to be really hairy and he's going to smell really bad. You'll know who he is, okay? Okay? And when you get in front of him, he's going to ask you who you are, okay? This is very important that you repeat these words I'm going to tell you. And watch what he says to say. Uh, he says, then you are to say, when he asks, they belong to you, you uh, your servant, Jacob. Now make sure when you say this, say, they belong to your servant, Jacob. Don't say Jacob. Don't say your master. You make sure to say the words, your servant. We're going to try to butter him up. We don't want to die. So say to him, repeat after me, they belong to your servant, Jacob. That's good. Now watch this. They are a gift sent to my Lord Esau. So you got two words. Servant, that's Jacob. Got it? Servant Jacob. Lord, that's not me. That's not Jacob. You call me Lord, but he doesn't. You say that Esau is Lord. Jacob's servant, Esau Lord. Do you understand? Blink three times if you understand. Right? So very clear instructions. And he is coming behind us. Okay, you take it. When he asks, you say, they belong to your servant Jacob, but they're no longer his. They're yours. Because you're the Lord of Jacob, Esau, and he's coming to greet you by kissing your feet, right? So really, really important instruction. So he's still manipulating. He's nervous. He thinks if he throws a million livestock at him and calls him Lord, everything will be okay. Now remember, he stole everything from Esau. The first case of identity theft ever in the world right here. And all of a sudden, he's like, yep, got your social security number, but it's okay. You right? Here he goes. They didn't have social security numbers. That was a joke. Okay, they did have Mini Coopers because Jacob drove one. Okay, I don't know why I'm fixated on this. Sorry, so, someone is here for the first time in a Mini Cooper, and you hate me. And I'm so sorry. I really do think those. I'm sorry. I do think those cards are really cute. <laughs> okay, verse 19. He also instructed the second, the third, and all the others who followed the herds. You are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. Okay, next. Remember, who's the servant? Jacob's the servant. Who's the Lord? Esau's the Lord, right? So he's going to say this over and over again. You're going to say the same thing. And be sure to say, I'm not making this up, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. Make sure, what do you say? Servant Jacob coming behind. That's right, okay? For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead. This is complete coercion and manipulation. This is the same old Jacob. Thinking he can manipulate himself out of something, right? pacify him with these gifts later when I see him perhaps he will receive me so Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him but he himself spent the night in the camp that night Jacob got up and took his two wives his two female servants and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok after he had sent them across the stream he sent over all the possessions so he's preparing this last night he's sending them all there right so got this whole plan in hopes that he might not die, right? He's going to be the servant. He understands that. Like, he's just come to the conclusion that he's manipulated, unworthy, and so he's going back. God's told him to come back, so he's not going to disobey God. He's going to do what God says, but he's going to do it in the only way he knows, which is to manipulate, coerce, right? And so last night here, so he sent them all across, sent all the possessions across, and it says verse 24. So Jacob was left alone. Okay, this is a night... For, this might be the night, last night of his life. He has no idea. He knows his brother is impulsive, right? Sold his whole birthright for a bowl of soup. 
you know, emotional, erratic, all those things. And so, so much, it's so weird. You got this big, long story that the writer and God wants us to know that Jacob is spending a lot of time and a lot of energy trying to take matters into his own hands. And then all of a sudden, this one verse, there's so much in it, and we don't even understand it. I mean, it's crazy. It says this. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled him until daybreak. What? Like, where did this come from? All of a sudden, you see all these things, and all of a sudden, Jacob's there. And the next thing you know, a WWF match, uh, or WWE, or WCW, or NW, I have no idea what the letters are anymore, right? It's fake. I'm just joking. It's not fake. It's real. A man wrestled him till daybreak. Do you understand? Like, this is why you should read your Bible. It makes no, this is crazy. So he's got all this whole preparation. Now all of a sudden he's back in by himself. He forgot the, uh, the supplies for the s'mores. So he's just sitting there all by himself. And the next thing we know, a wrestling match breaks out between him and some stranger. Remember, he was all left alone and he's wrestling. Now, if you look at this Greek, uh, the Hebrew word for wrestle there, you know what it means? wrestle like it really means wrestle it meant they did body to body body fighting like pulling hair you know all this stuff and so him and some stranger they're wrestling remember all this stuff leading up to it and then all of a sudden the verse we just see for eight ten hours jacob's wrestling now remember what we know about jacob is he was like he was the less masculine of him and esau esau hunted esau fought he, you know, broke bears' necks with his hands, and Jacob cooked stew, right? And so he's not a tough guy. He's got soft nails, right? They're pretty, right? He even has the nice cuticles, right? He did, I mean, this is a guy who's well-polished. He is not a fighter, not a jab at him. That's great, happy for him. But this is a guy who doesn't fight, and the next thing we know, he is fighting all night long in a wrestling match. And one thing I'll point out here is when we read these scriptures, this is not like a folk or... Uh, tale or myth or legend. This is, this is a true story. So imagine all this. He's preparing all this. He sent thousands of people and, you know, livestock across this river, and all of a sudden he's just sitting there, and the next thing we know, he's in a wrestling match. And I would say, we probably should pay attention to this, because this is crazy, right? Verse 25, when the man saw that he could not overpower him, so there's some stranger wrestling, and he is aware that this guy is a, he's a good wrestler, right? He's a good wrestler, right? I could not overpower him. This is so messed up. He touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched and his, as he wrestled with the man. So two things going on here. One, we are going to find out in just a second that the man that he's wrestling is God, okay? Just, if you're not familiar with the story, that's what we're going to find out. This is God. So first, we've got some confusion going, wait, God couldn't overpower the guy who drives the Mini Cooper, right? God God couldn't overpower him. What is going on here? Is Jacob that strong or is God that weak? And then you finally come to that conclusion. Then it says, but when he realized that he wasn't going to overpower him, he then touches him with his finger and he puts his old hip out of socket, right? Have you ever like had your finger jammed or joint pulled and how bad that hurts? This man, he is wrecked. So can't overpower him. Then all of a sudden you see one little touch, Abraka Yahweh, right? One little touch. And all of a sudden, he is just damaged beyond uh, repair. We're going to find out that he's going to walk without limb forever. So this is a really confusing passage. The whole thing is. Jacob sent everything away. We understand the manipulation. We understand the coercion. Then all of a sudden, we find ourselves here. One verse, we find this guy's wrestling with Jacob all night long. And the next verse, Jacob's doing a really good job. He's like in the 32nd round, right? Going really well. But then we see just one little touch, and he's wrecked. So you're going, okay, you got two really um, juxtaposed or... Uh, contrasted moments where it says he can't overpower Jacob, but he can do significant damage with his finger. 
So we're going to have to resolve that. We're going to figure out, okay, what's God doing here? Is he really not that strong? And we will resolve it in about 20 minutes. So, or 15 minutes. You're doing the math. I know, I know. We're going to be here for a while. I hope you brought a sandwich, right? And so we are going to resolve this. This is going to take me a little while to get there, okay? (laughs) Then the man said, let me go for it's daybreak. Now, we understand this because we kind of have a little bit of a back side of the story. We now know this is God. And you go, that's weird. He didn't mind wrestling all night. Now, what's he got? He's got to get to his job, right? Oh, goodness, it's 7.55. I got I to gotta get over to the refinery, you know? Like, not sure exactly, but we, so he goes, is that what's going on? Well, if you understand the scriptures, even when you see Moses later, the idea of someone seeing God face-to-face would completely destroy them. Like, their face would burn off. Really, so this guy's going, hey, I probably should go. We got, you got to let go of me. Quit tugging on me. Quit grasping. Quit clinging. Because ta- this is over. This is over, right? And he says, let me go for his daybreak. But Jacob replied, such a stubborn dude, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Remember, this is the story of Jacob's life. He just wants the blessing. He just wants the blessing. He wants his daddy to bless him. Now he wants this figure who he knows is God. He's going to tell us in just a second. He wants God's blessing. He's going, nope, not going to do it. Not going to do it. Not going to do it. Like Dana Carvey, not going to do it. I'm just going to keep holding over, hold on to you until you bless me. Bless me. And the guy's like, well, you have to sneeze first, Jacob, right? And so there's this battle, and he's just holding on. He's going, I'm not going to let go until you bless me. Jacob wants a blessing. He believes this guy can offer it. That's what's going on. Bless me, bless me, bless me, bless me. Now watch this. <laughs> so weird. Then the man asked him, what's your name? Okay, you've been wrestling a dude all night in the dark. Don't you think you should ask him his name ahead of time? Right? What's your name? What's your name? Okay. Remember, we know this is God. And God is all-knowing. He spoke all this in existence. When these two were babies in the womb, God says to Rebecca, and he says, there's going to be something strange here. The older is actually going to serve the younger. The blessings will come to the younger. Long before either one of them performed, God already knew what was going to happen. He was already, he, we use the word providence, right? That means God sees all things, and he's working in all things, and he is bending and shaping all things for our good and his glory. So we know that he knows all things. So every time we see God ask a question in the scriptures, every time, Old Testament, New Testament, it's never because he doesn't know the answer. Every single time he asks a question, that's Jesus too. Every time, every time, take it to the bank. Every time you see God or Jesus ask a question, it is never for God or Jesus' benefit. It's always for the one who's having the conversation. So in this moment, he's saying, what's your name? And Jacob says, Jacob. Oh, pretty profound, right? No, not really, but it is. Because in the very beginning, this is so terrible, what we see when uh, Esau and Jacob come out of the womb, Harry, Esau, and then Jacob, what we know is <laughs> there's like a fight for who's going to get out of the birth canal first. I mean, this is dangerous, guys, right? And there's a fight. And so Esau <laughs> makes it out first. I don't know, some gun was shot and they take off and Esau makes it out first, like literally first. But when he comes out, Jacob is literally holding on to Esau, like like when he comes out, you only have to hold the first baby because the second baby, Jacob, is actually just, just dangling there. And so he gets the name Jacob, which means grasper, which is another word that we would use for deceiver or manipulator. This is a terrible name. This was a pejorative even back then. So the name Jacob was not a good name. It's basically like, it's like you having a baby and going, I'm going to name him Liar so that everybody can call him Liar his whole life. That wouldn't be nice. But literally, that's what this guy's name is. So every time people would ask him his name, he'd go, I'm manipulator, Right? And so in this moment, Jacob is having to come out, and he's finally going, yep, I'm the manipulator. I'm the deceiver. I'm the conniver. I'm the grasper. So for this moment, when he has this conversation with God, he acknowledges kind of that root identity that he has, right? 
He's a deceiver. He's a manipulator. He doesn't have friends. Nobody trusts him, right? So he asked him names, and the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, okay? Because you have struggled with God and with humans, and you've overcome. So in this moment, God actually transforms Jacob and gives him a brand new identity. You see it throughout the scriptures. wish we would do it now. I wish we would have a new name when we discover this new thing about us because it changes everything. His whole identity changes, and he's no longer Jacob, but he's Israel, right? When you think of the nation of Israel that we point to now, all the mess over there, and that, you know, little strip of land, when we talk about Israel, it starts here, here, thousands of years earlier, thousands, right? When we think about the whole Jewish nation, when we think about everybody with the last name Stein, right? When we're thinking about these things, it all originates with this dude who was a deceiver and now he gets a new name. He says, because you're going to wrestle with God. Now what's interesting is you're going to see this for this whole nation forever. Still to this day, this battle and this wrestling. And so he goes, you held on, you struggled, and you overcame, so your new name is Israel. So he gets a new name. And then verse 29, Jacob says, oh, Please tell me your name. Wait, we've been wrestling for a while. You asked me my name. Hey, I'm, J- I'm Jacob. No, Israel, what's your name? <laughs> but he replied, why do you ask my name? So he's just saying, again, not because he doesn't know the answer. He's going, Jacob, I just gave you a new name. You're asking for a blessing. Why can't you just go ahead and give me credit for this? Because, see, you're still a little skeptical. You still wonder if it's true. You still wonder, for, wonder, wonder if I'm good. You still wonder if I'm going to keep my promises. So you're not even really sure it's me. Literally, I just touched that socket on your hip, and you're all, all sorts of messed up, right? You're asking for a blessing. So you think it's me, so why do you ask me my name? And we don't know if he says his name, or what we do say is this. Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. Well, this is crazy, because every blessing within the Scriptures— even when you think about the blessings, like may the Lord shine his face upon you, right? All those things. Every blessing in the scriptures comes with a vocal statement. Only place we can find it where there is a blessing. And we don't know what God says. No idea. A little bummed by that. But we know in that moment, Jacob got what he was always looking for. Now, it was hard for him to get it. He's wrestling, manipulating, conniving, all sorts of anxiety, all sorts of stuff. But in that moment, he finally, finally gets his blessing. So this is a pretty climatic moment in history everything Jacob had been looking for that he got. Remember, he got his dad's blessing, but he didn't get it. His brother got it. He just pretended to be his brother, right? This is the first time someone's looked at him, called him by name, changed his name, gave him a new identity, and gave him the blessing. So this, this is the thing of all things that Jacob, and by the way, all of us are looking for. We're all looking for this blessing, haven't been able to find it, and even once we got it, we impress somebody, impress the boss, impress some girl, impress whatever it is, and then the reality is, deep down we think, but what got the blessing, what got the affirmation is the pretense of who I pretend to be, not who I actually am. So Jacob finally acknowledges who he is. He's a deceiver, he's a manipulator, and God looks him in the face and calls him a new name and gives him exactly what all of us were looking for, his blessing. Jacob, there is nothing you could do to make me love you anymore. Jacob, there's nothing you could do to make me love you any less. And for you to get that, I'm gonna give you a new name so every time you hear me speak it, Israel, Israel, every time you hear that, what you're gonna remember is, boy, did I struggle with this belief. Boy, did I struggle with whether or not I thought this was true. Boy, did I struggle with all this worldview stuff and going, is there really God? God, are you really good? All those things. Every time I hear you call my name, I'm gonna remember all the struggling and the battles that I had and the fact that I overcame them. So the really crazy thing about Jacob is Jacob's us, right? We manipulate all the time. We... We actually have come to some conclusions that there's some manipulations, that, some lies we can make about ourselves as long as they're like at a, like, I don't know, a small level. Let me give you an example. There are some office supplies you can take from work, right? There's a few extra copies you can make or prints you can do or 
you can use a little bit of your time at work to shop on Amazon and play on Facebook, but there's only a certain amount, right? So if you have eight hours, kind of the threshold for all of us is about an hour, right? We got to give about seven hours of real work, but the other hour I can kind of do with what I want to because, you know, I, I do so good in those other seven hours. They don't really deserve to pay me for all. I mean, they deserve, I deserve to get paid for all eight, but really, I only really need to do six or seven hours, right? I mean, we do that in so many different things. Even the way that we speak to our kids, the things that we tell them, the things we tell our spouse, they're almost fully true almost fully true, but they're not all true, right? Because there's still this belief that somehow we still are in control, we can still shape things, and it's okay to kind of keep the steering wheel and do our own thing. And so Jacob just lived a life that God continued to bless, and he continued to forget about God's blessings and continued to manipulate and control. And so finally, in this moment, God's going, Jacob, let me touch you on the hip so you'll walk with a lamp the rest of your life, and let me give you a new name so you can remember over and over again it's my power, and it's my might, and it's I'm the, one, I'm the one doing the work and giving the blessing. You're just the witness. So I just would offer that to us if we're Christians. Like, what, what, what's it going to take? How many more times does the sun have to rise and set before we finally go, yeah, I actually think God's pretty good. Now, what I'm going to offer to you, there's actually a solution to this. And if you're not a Christian, I go, this is going to be really, really neat for you. Because here's some things that you can put into practice and kind of see God come to life for you, okay? So first, let me finish the verse. It says, so Jacob called the place Peniel, or Peniel saying, it's because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. That's a Hebrew word that literally means turn, El, meaning God. But it means God showed his face, turned his face, right? Um, the sun rose above him as he passed the uh, Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. So you got this really crazy scene. He makes an announcement of where it's going to be, and he walks off like Don Quixote on the, the horse backwards. But he walks off. Like, this is a great movie scene with that, that lamp that he's going to have forever. Like, never changes for him. So you go, okay, what did it take? What did it take for Jacob to have this really complicated life? Two wives. Boy, that's complicated. Lots of kids. Lots of lying. Lots of deceit. And you can look at the Laban thing of his father-in-law and go, you know, Jacob kind of deserved that. Right? He tricked his own dad. It makes sense that somebody, your father-in-law, would also trick you. You know, we think, oh, yep, we get what we deserve, all that kind of stuff. So what does it take to get Jacob to this point? And so um, here's what I'd offer. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's good, but I, don't, I think it might be a letdown for you. Uh, what changed for Jacob was his willingness to actually talk to God. By that, I mean prayer. So I don't know if you've kind of picked up on this. There's, last week, I shared a little bit as we get ready for opening up a, another night of church on a Saturday night for Saturday night services at 5 that will start in October. And you're going to be hearing about it through the month of August on how you can sign up and be a part of it. The one real hesitancy of this, really excited about what God's doing here. The one real hesitancy is I don't want us to manufacture this. I don't want us to manipulate it. I don't want us to look back and go, boy, we're really good. Look what we did. I want to make sure that somehow in this that God gets the credit for all this. And that's why I'm going, hey, we, we got to pray. And we'll talk about this more in August. We'll be teaching on prayer on Wednesday nights when Cal starts back. And there'll be some teaching here on Sundays. And we invite more of you into that ministry of just jumping in and learning to pray and talking to God. And such an, almost an ethereal thing, right? Because you got questions like, well, but if God knows everything, then why do I talk to him? Get some of those things. Well, should I never talk to this? Like, well, because the whole idea of this God is he's very relational, right? Just because your spouse knows you love him doesn't mean you should never tell him again, right? Actually, try that. It might work. I don't know. So, again, you have these different approaches. Like, okay, well, I'm not sure, so we'll, we'll work through these. But let me just point out these five points. Jacob, five of them here. If you notice, there's some good extra space in your notes to be able to write these stuff down. If you want to, you don't have to. So five things happen here that I think are pretty important that I just want to kind of point out over the next, really, seven minutes. Here they are. Um, what we see here first is that 
Uh, Jacob starts his conversation with God. That's prayer, conversation with God, right? With reminding God of his promises. He says over and over again, uh, Oh God, my father, God of my Isaac, uh, Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I will make you, I know I'm unworthy, but you said I will make you prosper. I will surely make you prosper, and you will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. So God, I'm just going to remind you that this is how the, the prayer starts. This is more for uh, Jacob getting some firmness in this and belief, as he actually reminds God and he prays those promises. I would suggest the same thing. You know what's crazy? 3,000 promises are in scriptures. 3,000 different promises from God to us. And I'd go, that's where I'd start. I just would keep reminding God of the things that he promised. It, that's a good way to start praying. Hey, guys, I want to point this out. You said the enemy came to still kill, and destroy, but you came to give life to the fullest. So I'm actually looking for that and expecting that from you. That's okay, right? You actually tell us in James that whoever asks for wisdom, you give it to them. So, hey, God, I'm actually looking for that. I'm expecting that. Hey, God, you tell us that you give us a peace that passes all human comprehension. Well, right now, my human comprehension tells me there's, that I should have all sorts of anxiety about what's going on in my life. But you promised that. So I'm, I'm actually, I'm looking for you to fulfill your promise. That's okay to talk to him like that. There's 3,000 different times that God makes a promise. And every one of those, remember, it's his covenant. It's not based on your performance. That like God gives those things. Just reading something. Since 2005, we're in 2019, there is over $50 billion in unused gift cards. $50 billion. In 2017 alone, there is $900 million of cash left on those American Express and Visa cards. You know, because we're really terrible gift givers. You know what I'm talking about? So uh, we give all these gift cards. $50 billion of uncashed gift cards in the last 14 years. Last year alone, billion more dollars. Just add it up. It is already paid for, like completely paid for. Nobody has to do anything for it, right? Unless you, want, unless you got one for the big yellow mug, keep holding that one. That's fine. We're happy with that. You just don't pay it. Just bring your cash, right? So the, they're already paid for. Like, you understand that. That has already been paid for. All you have to do is put the card across the way. So when we think about these guys going, I've already promised these. And I've already paid for that promise through what Jesus did for you. So why in the world would we not go and cash those promises in? So, an offering for you, for those of us who believe this, go, hey, I would actually ask God to cash in on those promises because they're already paid for it. That's the first thing Jacob does. He asks God to cash in on the promises. Now, the second one we see here in this whole night battle is just this, this point that I think is really important, this wrestling, is this persistent prayer. Like Jacob thought he had access to God, wanted God's blessing, believed God was good for it, and so held on for dear life all night long. If you read through the scriptures of the New Testament, Jesus teaches us on prayer in such a weird way. In one way, he describes it as this annoying widow. So there's a story where this widow is due justice, and she's not getting it, and the judge isn't hearing her case. So every single day, the widow shows up and bugs the, 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 the judge over and over and over and over again. She bugs the judge. And it literally says, I don't care a thing about this woman or the justice. But this woman has flat worn me down, so I'll give her what she asks. So literally, God says, when you pray, bug the judge. Like, and even in this, the judge goes, I don't care about you. I'm not interested in you, but I just want you to shut your mouth. So what do you need? What do you need? I'll do it. There's another passage where Jesus talks about how to pray. And he explains it as these neighbors. And it's like a neighbor has some guests over, like three in the morning. And he's like, oh, I don't have any bread or milk. So he describes it as that neighbor goes to his neighbor's house in the middle of the night, bangs on the door, asks his neighbor to come and asks him for bread and milk, right? And of course, if some neighbor did that, you'd be so annoyed, and so the neighbor doesn't want to do it. Then finally, the, the neighbor goes, fine, here's the bread and milk. 
just so you'll stop knocking, right? So this is passages in Scripture where Jesus is going, that's the way you should pray. Jacob is hanging on for dear life and going, nope, not letting go. You're going to bless me. You're going to bless me because you're good for it. And you go, well, that's weird. Is God an, an annoyed neighbor or an angry judge? And here's what Martin Luther says. It's so beautiful about those passages. Um, he says about God calling us to that kind of prayer, he says he does so to see the strength of our faith in his goodness. To see the strength of our faith in his goodness. So he's going, no, no, God's not a bad judge or an annoying neighbor. But boy, does he love when you keep coming back and he gets to see the strength of your faith in his goodness. You're going, no, God is good. So if I keep asking, he's either going to answer this in the way that I'm asking, because he's good, or he's going to answer it in the way that I would ask if I knew what he knew. Right? And so Martin Luther goes, no, this isn't a, this, the description of this is more about our persistence in believing that God will always give us what we ask for if it's in our best interest. So second thing Jacob does, he wrestles. The third thing we see here, and this is really, really important, is blessings don't happen through manipulation. This one's probably the, um, the biggest key, I think, in my life is, you know, it's interesting. We have problems with our spouses sometimes, problems with our kids, problems with our bosses, but we don't pray about it. We just try to convince them that we're right and they're wrong. You ever notice that? Like, we spend so much of our time and energy trying to convince someone to see it in our way as if our way's right and their way's wrong, right? Like, how often when you have a battle with your kids or with your spouse or with your boss or with your coworkers or with your teacher, whatever it is, how often when, when that comes up, does your first thought go, oh, I should probably talk to God about this? And not, like, get him on my side. To actually say, hey, God, there is a, probably a, something you want to do here. Would you do it? But instead, what we do is we just go try to convince our spouse that they should do it because we have a better perspective than they do, right? And so what we see here over and over again is uh, blessings don't come through manipulation. You cannot manipulate this. And if you did, it would feel so dirty and wrong and you, God couldn't get the credit anyway. You know who gets the credit? You do. You know what you get the credit for being? A manipulator. That's it. So blessings don't come through manipulation. Here's the um, uh, fourth one, really, really beautiful here. The neat thing about prayer is when you pray, you get more than an answer, which is what we think we want. We want an answer. Jacob got to talk face-to-face with God. He wanted a blessing. God gave him a new identity, gave him a firm foundation, gave him the peace of that he needed now to be his bro- with his brother again. And he got to see God face-to-face. Like, he got to interact and be with God. That's much better than an answer. That's much better than, let me write the check for your uh, electric bill right? So when we see this really neat thing is that when we pray, it's not that there's this binary God who goes, God, uh, here, would you answer us? Check yes for one for yes, two, zero for no, right? You know, it's that song, the Garth Brooks song. I thank God for unanswered prayers. Are you familiar with the song? Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. And when you're talking to the man upstairs, so rude. Even though he's not listening, doesn't mean he doesn't care, right? You know the song? You know what the song's about? Garth Brooks goes back to a high school football game and he sees his ex that he wanted to marry and he goes, wow, she's ugly. My wife's pretty. Thanks, God, for not listening, right? That's what the story's about. So we just think that God either goes yes or no, right? But when you pray and every time you pray, infinite things are being unlocked. So you're not saying God will either say yes or no. When you talk to God, he is now in the middle of it and there are now infinite possibilities that are all better than what you can manipulate or imagine. Right? And so when we pray, something completely different happens than God just says yes or no. So when you pray, what you get is God. You get God. And then the blessing that God decides to give you. And this is what Tim Keller says all the time. I want you to hear it over and over again. When you pray, every time you pray, God is either going to answer your prayer the way you're asking him to, 
or in the way that you would ask him to if you can see and know all the things that God sees and knows. There is no wrong way to pray and there's no bad outcome. There is no wrong way to pray and there is no bad outcome. So what keeps us from it? You know what keeps us from it? Disappointment. A disappointment that we are so afraid that God's not going to come through. Hear me. God is always going to come through. Which leads me to the fifth point. And the way that he knows, we know he's going to come through is the same way he came through with Jacob in that day. He stepped down there and made himself weak so that Jacob could spend the entire night with him wrestling. Right? This isn't because God wasn't strong enough. God in his graciousness decided to give himself a handicap so that he could play golf with Jacob. Right? He decided in that moment to make himself so weak, so weak, so that Jacob could spend time with him. That's the humility of God. And you go, well, what if God doesn't answer prayers? The way that we know he answers our prayers is because God and his graciousness made himself so weak that he literally stepped on our planet, the whole point of the New Testament, and made him so weak so that he could spend time with humans. He could interact with humans. He could cry like humans could. He could bleed like humans could. He could have the anxiety that humans could. Why? Because he wanted to model what it's like to be incarnational, be with us, spend time with us. So you go, does God answer prayers? Well, yes, he does. And the greatest way he did is he literally stepped on our world to make all things new again. So I can't promise God will do everything you want him to do right now. But I can promise you, if you trust him, you will have an eternity where there'll be no more pain, no more sorrow, and no more tears, and it will be perfect. It'll be perfect. It'll be far beyond what you can imagine. And so we know that God always answers prayers because he literally stepped down. Here's how Tim Keller said it. Jacob held on at the risk of his life to get the blessing for him. Jacob held on for his own blessing. So selfish. Jacob held on at the risk of his life to get the blessing. But Jesus held on at the cost of his life to get the blessing for us. Jacob held on at the risk of his life to get his own blessing. But Jesus held on at the cost, made himself weak on a cross, not to get the blessing for himself, but to give it to us. So, if God never answers a single one of our prayers, which he will, the way that he answered it 2,000 years ago, by looking out to his father and going, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. There is no greater answer or greater blessing that God sets everything right, gives us a new name, and the name that he gives us is child. The son of man, or the son of God, became the son of man so that sons of men, the son of God became the son of men so that sons of men and daughters of men could be sons and daughters of God. So the blessing that comes to us is he makes himself available. So God's weakness in that moment that we see with Jacob is the same weakness that he shows on the cross to make all things new for us. So here's the last thing I'll offer you. Just double dog area. What would it hurt you to talk to God? Even if you don't even believe him, what would it hurt for you to go, God, I don't even know that I believe you, but if this is true, if you have un, you give me unfettered, unfiltered access to you and all you want to do is pour out 3,000 promises on me, what do you have to lose? You know, just want to prepare you for that. What you have to gain is pretty overwhelming. The deity of the world would make himself known to you. The deity of the world, God of the universe, would shine so much light on you that every part of darkness in your life would be pretty overwhelmed. So you're stepping into a life that's pretty overwhelming. But you're stepping into light with a God who loves you and a community of people who will walk in this with you. And so we're going to sing a song to finish as we wrap this up. And so if you'd stand with me, the bands will come up. I'm going to pray and ask us to have the boldness to talk to God. And we're going to sing about that God that shows weakness, that God who does all things perfect, and that God we can trust. So I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. Jesus, um, there is no one like you. Like even that moment that we see with you and Jacob is, doesn't even make sense, God, that you would make yourself so weak 
so humble to limit yourself so much for one purpose, to spend the whole night with a dude that you loved and connect with. And God, that same way you felt about Jacob is the same way you feel about us. Regardless of whether or not we're sinners, regardless of whether or not we're manipulators, you come into our lives to make yourself present and meet us right where we are with our own weaknesses. And then exchange our weaknesses for your perfection. And so God, would you give us the boldness and the courage to speak to you and talk to you and worship you. And I pray these things in your name. Amen.